Our Old Testament reading for this morning is from the book of the prophet Joel in the second chapter, beginning at verse 30 and continuing through verse 32. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. And I, the Lord, will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. This morning's New Testament reading comes from the book that Presbyterians fear to trod in, Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1 through 7. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. As I mentioned in one of my emails this past week, and as many of you have probably already heard, the first batch of images from the James Webb Space Telescope have been publicly unveiled. Included among them were snapshots of the far reaches of the universe. They captured in them countless galaxies far, far away, both in space and in time, for the light was entering that telescope had been emitted hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of years ago. The photos are magnificent in every sense of the word. They show all sorts of sizes and Shapes and colors of galaxies that contain within them each 
hundreds of thousands upon millions of stars around which are an incalculable number of planets. And as incredible as these pictures are, one of the things that I found most striking about this whole thing was the fact that the pictures that were released represented a, a slice of the vastness of space equivalent as it was explained to the size of a grain of sand held at an arm's length from your eyes. In other words, just the very tiniest sliver of the heavens was explored and captured in these images. I will admit readily that math has never been my strongest subject. So I would struggle mightily attempting to calculate the number of potential galaxies based on a sample size as small as this one. But it suffices to say that in layman's terms, the approximate number of galaxies in total is a lot. And by a lot, I mean, to borrow a phrase from Carl Sagan, billions and billions. My little brain is just not capable of wrapping itself around a number such as this. And in other celestial news this week, on Thursday we were treated to the largest appearing full moon of the year. It's called, among other things, the Buck Moon, which is ironic because that night there were two deer right here in the cemetery. When I saw it that night, the moon was hazy, but there was plenty of light shining through the clouds to illuminate the darkness, almost as if it were twilight. And finally, there is the presence in our neighborhood of the solar system, perhaps the largest comet that will pass nearby in any of our lifetimes. Scientists estimate that is on the order of 12 miles across. At its closest point this week, it passed 175 million miles or so from Earth, and even at that distance, it's put on a pretty good show as you look up into the night sky. It's almost as if this week, God has chosen to show off just a little bit. I read one article about these astronomical events in which the author admitted to a feeling of smallness. Honestly, I think that's a very healthy thing for us to be reminded of, perhaps more often than we already are. It aids in our humility, and I certainly think that we could all use a little bit more of that. It also serves as a reminder that we did not create all that is, that we do not have claim to all that is. And though many probably don't wish to remind it, be reminded of this fact, our generation is certainly not the first to come to the conclusion that we didn't create it all and we don't have claim to it all. The author or authors of Psalms often pay tribute in prose to the magnificence of the creation. Again and again, they extol the marvelous works of God, whom is the acknowledged creator 
of all that was, is, and evermore shall be. And all of this is well and good, or very well and very good, as the Creator Himself pronounced over that which He had called into being at the beginning. But that's only the beginning of the wonder of it all. For as indescribably beautiful to behold and moving to contemplate that which is on display in our glory this week and every week, everywhere that we turn our gaze, all of it is but the dimmest of glimpses through a glass darkly, as the Apostle Paul so wonderfully described it, all of what we're seeing and hearing and tasting and experiencing in this world is done by the light of a single candle. But on that day and in the manner of God's choosing, a floodlight will be switched on, and that which is revealed will be so much more indescribably glorious than anything we've known before at all that we once regarded as beautiful, then those things will hardly seem worth recalling at all. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells an allegory about people en route to an eternity with God and others to an eternity without. And in a description of what the heavenly realm holds for the book's protagonist, he writes that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Beyond expectation, and then beyond, we might say. That's what Jesus was hinting at when he was asked about the covenant of marriage in the life to come. The religious officials of his day were regularly trying to show up Jesus. And on one occasion, they thought they could do so by asking him a question based on a highly improbable but salacious hypothetical situation. What if a woman outlives not one or two or three, but seven husbands? In the resurrection life, you speak of Jesus. Which of these brothers will get to claim soul marital privileges with her? Disappointing them, Jesus plays down the prospect of carnal pleasures. The sorts of pleasures that derive from the flesh will, in that day, seem all but insignificant as they will be replaced by rapture on a whole grander scale. Hard as it was for the Pharisees to imagine, and perhaps as hard for us also to imagine, the sights, sounds, tastes, smells of this life will be so far surpassed by what's to come that we will have no longer any desire for them at all. This will be in the day when the Lord declares, I am making everything new. The hour when he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. This radical new thing will have at its center 
the abiding imminence of God in the midst of his people. Like it was for a few decades, 2,000 years ago, except that all who are in his presence will have no doubt at all that they are in his presence. And it is there that they will remain forevermore. Never again to thirst for water or want for food or wish for companionship or mourn loss or rue missed opportunities. Worshiping and serving the Lord with gladness day in and day out with no pain or weakness, no sickness of mind or body or spirit to interfere. When I was in attendance at a church conference in D.C. a couple of months ago, I was talking with a fellow representing a Christian liberal arts college in the Upper Plains. And in the course of our conversation, we were talking about the ways the pandemic has impacted our respective work environments. And at the end of it, he made an interesting observation. He said that as real a threat as the virus was and is, If we are as Christian as we claim to be, why should we get as uptight about it as the rest of the world that lives without divine hope? I think he understood that at the end of the day, what lies ahead is not to be feared. In fact, what we've been experiencing in this life is but the first chapter. People will sometimes say, about people they've known who have gotten sick or old or infirmed or all the above, that they are now only a shadow of their former selves. But the gospel truth is that no matter what shape we're in today, for better or for worse, what we are is simply shadows of our future selves. The best really is yet to come. In a week when so many amazing sights are on display in the heavens, that it gets so much better than that might be hard to fathom. But in a week when so many disturbing sights are on display on the earth, it might also be a welcome reminder. A new and improved version of the heavens, a new and improved version of the earth, are even now in divine gestation and will be delivered at the time that has always been appointed for their arrival. Yes, these are the last days. They've been the last days for a long time. The great, awesome, and terrible day of the Lord is surely coming, and it will inaugurate a new age of God with us. And this will bring with it both unimaginable comforts to some and unimaginable anguish to others. However you choose to look at it, as Christians, we have faith in the Father's Word and in the promises of His Son. The final chapter in the final book of Scripture is the exclamation point on all that has preceded it in the rest of God's holy book. His covenant faithfulness to his people throughout the generations has all been leading up to this point. Until it arrives in its fullness, we are invited to live, to live gratefully for both the beauty and the wonder that we know and the beauty 
and the wonder that we shall one day know. We are invited to make known the beauty and the wonder that we have been made to know. And we can continue to be amazed at the majesty of the creation that exists all around us and the eternal loving creator who made and freely offers all these things for our use and our benefit. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.